You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. In this episode, we're going to look at the 1920 season, kind of skim over the early parts. Again, I don't want to necessarily get into the... uh, particular games you can go on baseball reference and look at those if you're really interested in the uh, the nuts and bolts of every game in that season rather we're going to kind of take a uh, a broader approach look at the pennant race of that season and uh, two key members of that team that actually didn't show up until about the last month of the season that really helped Cleveland get over the hump and finish September strong and clinch the AL pennant. Also on this episode, I have another interview with Scott Longert, who is the author of the the most definitive book on that 1920 team and everything that kind of led up to that. And he's actually written several other books of the about the Indians around that era, kind of a, a trilogy, so to speak. He's a uh, fantastic read. If you haven't had a chance to pick up any of his works, uh, I would suggest it if you want to get more into uh, the Indians' history. So we mentioned on a previous podcast that the tribe was favored. A lot of writers were picking them to uh, take the AL crown. They were going to be challenged, some said by the Yankees, by uh, the White Sox, who were coming off the or were the defending AL champions. So the Indians had their work cut out for them. They had Tris Speaker his first full season 
as a, a manager, he obviously came out um, midway through the season when the Tribe fired uh, their previous manager after Babe Ruth hit a home run. And uh, again, we discussed that a little more in the past. But nevertheless, the expectations were extremely high. Here, Scott describes the the fast start of the club. Yeah, they had a good April and May. Yeah, they were they came out very strong. Yeah, if I remember, Bagby and Kovaleski were combined like something like seventeen and one by the end of May, something like that, or seventeen and two. They uh, and then Ray Caldwell got hot about a month later, and he started winning a lot of games. So their their pitching was just outstanding from the from uh, opening day through the whole season. Speaking of Kovaleski, he uh, was tabbed for his fourth opening day start or fourth straight opening day start, which was a franchise record at that point. Uh, they were taking on St. Louis Browns in Cleveland. And again, lots of excitement. There was the Mayor's Rooter Club, which I love these Rooters Club. If you ever look at um, Boston's got the Royal Rooters and uh I would urge you to Google. It's uh, McGreevy and the Royal Rooters. It was just this ultimate fan club. They'd come marching into the stadium and uh, sing songs. And I guess sort of like like soccer teams now have all these chants and cheers and really a neat uh, fan group. And Cleveland had a few of them, but nothing that was ever famous. They had a few songs they would sing, but... Again, nothing that is is remembered, but in 1920, they they did have a few of those. And then uh, the mayor was also the honorary first pitch to open the the season. So I I think there's probably a project in there if someone wanted to track down every single opening day uh, first pitch. It would be a lot of work, but usually the paper would mention them. So for for that game, it was Mayor Davis. So it's not a... uh, a new tradition by any means of having someone of some celebrity throwing out the first pitch. Kovaleski struck out the first batter of the season, which was setting the pace for him as he ended up being the American League leader in strikeouts that season. And not only was it Kovaleski having a great season, but also Jim Bagby. Bagby himself ended up winning his first eight starts of the season. So again, there's a strong start with both Kovaleski and uh, Bagby. And the Tribe really needed that to to compete with the White Sox and with New York, both having a strong starts to the season. In the first few months of the season, the Tribe was putting up great numbers. They finished April at 8-3. and three. May, they went 18-8, and eight, which ran the record to 26-11. and 11. June, they finished 17-11, and 11, so that put them at 43-22. and 22. And they were in first place for much of May. Boston took over for a few days. And pretty much all of June, uh, Cleveland was was in first place. The Tribe kept it going in July. They finished 22 and 10. So they were 12 games over, 500 in a month. And you know, it's really what you want to shoot for. And they were uh, holding their own against you know the challengers for the American League pennant. However, with that 1920 season, so much of it leads up to the Chapman incident at the polo ground and the crossroads that put the team at because you're battling the Yankees for first place and something like that happens. Now the tribe was able to win that game. Kovaleski got the win. And uh, at that point he was 19 and nine. So he was having a, a great season, but you lose 
a player on your team, not only just an injury, but he, he died. It, it's hard to imagine coming back from that. And at that point, the, the tribe kind of hit the skids. Um, and I think a lot of that obviously has to do with the entire whirlwind situation. I can't imagine the guys were in any sort of mood to play baseball at that point. And here Scott describes the the whirlwind events of the Chapman funeral, and then they were almost immediately back playing baseball. Yeah, they only got one day off. They only got one game canceled. So they so they could come they came in late, uh, I believe it was Thursday night or they got an early Thursday morning for the Friday funeral and then they had to leave Friday night for Boston to go and play a double header. I think to make up the game that they uh, that they canceled. So they had the players had virtually no time. They just had to come in town from the east coast and attend the funeral and try and deal with that. Then they had to get back on a train and go back to the east coast, which even in good circumstances that's not a great idea. You know, you got to be exhausted from that from all that train travel in, in like 24 hours. But they went and they they got beat, you know, they got beat pretty bad. I think they were shut out both games and it looked, you know, it was obvious they their heart were not in that were not in it and it would take them about two weeks or more to rally they uh, lost a lot of games and things looked grim but they uh, but they were able to pull themselves together and uh, get back on track and uh, and they got back in first place and then they won it going into August the tribe actually had a four-game lead in the American League they ended up going six and eight in the games leading up to Chapman's uh, a death and they then ended up being tied for for the AL now as Scott mentioned that didn't do many favors of going back to Cleveland and coming back to Boston because they had to make up those games too so they played a double header on a Saturday had Sunday off and played another double header against Boston on that Monday but those first two games back the combined score of both of them were 16 to 0 so again was not the greatest atmosphere for Cleveland, and when you see your American League lead disappear like that, that also can't be uh, be helpful for morale. In the immediate ten games after the tribe returns from Ray's funeral, they go three and seven and fall three and a half games back uh, in in the American League. So again, the season easily could have gone off the rails at this point. And this is where the tribe gets a boost from two players that one is a Hall of Famer. One is a name that many people, unless you're a hardcore baseball fan, probably wouldn't recognize. But these two gentlemen come and they give Cleveland a sorely needed boost. It was reported already by August 19th. Uh, that Joey Sewell was not going to be coming to the Indians anytime soon. The manager of the uh, New Orleans team wanted to keep Sewell with the New Orleans club to see if they could uh, do anything in the Southern Association race uh, for their for their pennant. So Sewell was a, a prospect for the Indians. He had just finished school at Alabama and, uh, as many will see, becomes a heck of a major league ball player. Joey Sewell has a wonderful oral history at the Cleveland Public Library. You can actually listen to that online, but he's got this uh, slow southern drawl that just makes his uh, his speaking easy listening. And uh, it has to be easy listening because his oral history, I think, is somewhere like an hour and a half or two hours long. But he tells some great tales. 
And here is uh, Scott with kind of a summary of some of that as well. Joe was uh, from Titus, Alabama, a very small farm community. That's where he was born. His younger brother was Luke, of course, who caught for the Indians for many years, and he managed uh, later the St. Louis Browns to a pennant. Um, Joe... I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Joe was the one that his dad his dad was a doctor who went around the countryside uh, in horse and buggy, but that was getting difficult in the early part of the 20th century. So his dad ordered a uh, a Model T from uh, from Henry Ford, and in those days they'd ship you the car on a rail, and they with a, an instructor came with the car, and the guy was there to teach his dad how to drive and operate the car. But Joe learned as well. I think Joe was maybe 13 or 14. But he wound up driving the car and chauffeuring his dad around the county to see his patients. So he got uh, exposed to driving at an early age. He uh, went to University of Alabama. He was a great football player as well as a baseball player. I think they uh, they might have won the conference title in baseball. But every year that Joe played, he was he was outstanding. And then the Indians signed him for New Orleans just in 1920. So he had just started in the minor leagues, and uh, New Orleans was their top farm club. So he was playing at a high level. And when Chapman uh, when Chapman passed away, it wasn't immediate. They tried a couple of guys there, uh, Harry Lunty, and then they tried to move Joe Evans to short. And uh, Lunty got injured, and Evans couldn't do it. So they uh, they decided to bring up Joe Sewell and to buy his major league contract and bring him up. Another player that really changed the fortunes for Cleveland was a guy named John Walter Duster Mills, and he was pitching out at the Sacramento Club of the Pacific Coast League. Now, Males had some previous Major League Baseball experience, but he had been sent back down and kind of floated around for a little bit until Cleveland signed him. Males was that left-hander that Cleveland had been looking for. He was recommended the Trist Speaker by uh, Frank Chance, who was a former manager of the Cubs, also played for the uh, Cubs as well. Um, Chance said he was the best southpaw in the PCL and one of the best left-handers in the game today. So that's a, a Bold assessment of a guy that, uh, again, hasn't been in the major leagues for a few years. Like Smokey Joe Wood, Males, his baseball reference page reads by his uh, nickname, Duster. And he actually had a few nicknames, but uh, with Duster, you might wonder, well, how did a guy get a uh, a nickname like that? And I figure since um, his baseball reference page listed, it's pretty important to who he is. So, the, the story goes that when he was pitching in the PCL with Seattle, they were playing Spokane in a game, beating them up 5 nothing. And in the sixth inning, the Spokane team was so disgusted that, that they were getting beat that they didn't even send out coaches when they went to bat. So Males and another player went out and were going to be the first base and third base coach for uh, Spokane. And that kind of rubbed Spokane the wrong way. One of their players started chirping. Then, you know, he had some back and forths, and it kind of ended with this player daring Duster to hit him when he was up next. But Duster didn't take the bait. Now, the next day, he did, and he he admits that he was trying to hit him with the ball uh, in his first at-bat. So when you're trying to back a player off the plate or throw at him, you're trying to dust him off and... Hence, the nickname Duster stuck with him from that incident, at least according to one story. And here's Scott talking about Duster Males. 
Yeah, he was a real outgoing guy. Uh, I think he was somewhat charismatic, a fun-loving guy who who liked the ladies when he was a bachelor. There was a story, I think it was probably in the file, you may have come across it, where uh, he was pitching on the West Coast and he was being interviewed and he was aware of all the girls that liked him. And uh, he's mentioned some about food and he said something like, what I really love is like a home-baked chocolate cake. That's my absolute favorite. And then the next day before game time, these girls deliver about 12 different chocolate cakes with their with their names on them to him so he was kind of a sly sly devil really really enjoying himself he uh i think he grew up if i remember he grew up near Folsom prison right in, in uh, somewhere around there and he wound up playing on an amateur team against uh, the inmates so he did that several times playing playing in prison doing that but i think he i wouldn't call him eccentric but i think he was a real outgoing guy liked to have fun didn't take things too seriously at all and, and uh, that that was his personality and they, of course they called him duster you know that was for for a reason he threw pretty hard inside at people and his control wasn't the greatest so he had he couldn't really dig in against them because you knew you might get one right in your ear you know if you weren't paying attention and that was that was part of his part of his game i guess and it was enough that uh attracted the indians in 1920 because they wanted another starter and he was putting up big numbers out in the pacific coast league and they decided he'd be their guy and uh they brought him here, and he pitched uh, fantastic. You know, he, I think, you believe he won six out of seven starts, and really helped them down the stretch when they needed it. And a big game against Chicago. He uh, pitched in a game. He had the bases loaded, nobody out, and he got out of it. And we won the ball game. That was a key victory they needed in late September. And he went on to pitch uh, excellent in the World Series. I think he he went a complete game and six and two thirds innings of relief without giving up a single run. So he had. Uh, he was he was up he was up with the team from uh, late August through the World Series, but he was a huge contributor in, in that time to help him uh, get the pennant and then uh, win the World Series. The Plain Dealer tracked Mail's uh, his journey to Cleveland and had a little fun with his name because on uh, August twenty eighth, it said Walter Mail's the new Indians pitcher has not yet arrived from the coast. This is causing no annoyance. All the mails are slow these days. So uh, I guess it's a 1920s uh, dad joke, if you will. Going back to what Scott says, the Indians got their their act together, so to speak, and it was starting to be noticeable in the papers, too. On August 29th, the plain dealer mentioned, yesterday was the first time since the death of Chapman that players showed any signs of pep. In that game, they had 21 hits and 15 runs. Uh, but the, the big... Big news was that Tris Speaker was looking a lot better. Now, you obviously need your best player to be putting forth his best performance, and Speaker was terribly affected by the death of Chapman and the incidents surrounding the funeral and the, the fight that went on. So to have Speaker getting back to his um, MVP caliber self was what the tribe needed. The paper said, The manager sets the example. Speaker is looking better and every day is gaining strength. Wednesday, he was pale and weak, having lost 15 pounds. Today, he looks like the speaker of old and is grooming his ball club for a driving finish. They had a few quotes from Speaker. He said, we are not out of the pennant race. Those two games dropped by the White Sox yesterday and today make the race much closer. We are in second place by a narrow margin, but Chicago is leading by only two games. This is not so bad when you consider that of the last 17 games played, we have won but five. Our slump has come to an end 
It is to end sometime, and now that we have it out of our system, watch us go. Speaker continued on, saying, The boys have recovered their spirits and are playing smart baseball. That's all I can ask of them. Bagby, Kovaleski, and Caldwell are pitching good ball. Morton and Clark are likely to turn in a good game at any time. It's that these pitchers will be helped by Walter Males, who arrived today. I expect to use Males in Washington. So he had uh, the reinforcement coming in with with Walter Males, and the team was hopefully turning that corner and making that sprint towards the, the AL pennant. And in that same paper, it mentioned uh, some wonderful reports about Joey Sewell. So you had Males and Sewell kind of coming, not necessarily to the rescue of the team, but really helping a team that was pushing forward towards the end and just that extra little oomph that they needed. On September 8th, then, it was a, a big news day in Cleveland. The tribe was uh, just clinging to first place and had the Yankees coming into town for a, a, a huge series towards, uh, again, seasons winding down. The big news was, again, this was the first visit of the Yankees to Cleveland since the death of Ray Chapman. One of the owners made the point that it probably wouldn't be a, a good idea for Carl Mays to join the club. And, was on record saying we are not taking Mays to Cleveland, not because we think there's any danger of any trouble, but out of respect to the feelings of the people there. We don't want to offend them. It's largely a matter of sentiment. So uh, that was one half of, of the news. The other half was that Joey Sewell was on his way to Cleveland. Chris Speaker and the Indians then were pinning their hopes on this untested rookie shortstop. And Scott has an interesting story of Joe's trip to Cleveland from the South. He was on his way up and just had a cotton suit on and the conductor on the train with him said, uh, you know, young man, it gets fairly cold in uh, Cleveland. You're going to need a, a wool suit. So when they had a layover in Cincinnati, the conductor took him to a tailor who uh, overnight made him a wool suit and got it to him before the train left. So he had something for uh, mid, late September and October in Cleveland. And there's an additional antidote that appeared in the Plain Dealer that's kind of similar of this kid from the South having no idea what fall and winter weather was like in Cleveland. But one can assume that Sewell learned pretty quickly. Again, to say that this entire season was made for a movie is a bit of a, an understatement. And it's highlighted with Henry Edwards, the sports writer for the Plain Dealer, where he says... Every series the Cleveland Indians play from now on may be termed crucial, but the three-game clash with the Yankees that starts tomorrow may be considered crucial to the nth degree, as New York comes to town close at the heels of the Indians in striving to win the pennant. So this was a big series with all the fanfare. Uh, there was a, a band coming to the game from Babe Ruth School, the St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore, uh, coming all the way to League Park to uh, root on Babe Ruth. So again, the atmosphere must have been fantastic. I mean, to be a fly on the wall for this series that meant so much to both teams' pennant hopes would be a, a phenomenal one to get a ticket to. And the Tribe actually took that first game on September 9th. Joey Sewell had gone into town and worked out prior to the game, but Again, you're not going to rush a kid into his first major league game right when he gets off the train. As Scott mentioned, I think earlier, Joe Evans, they had kind of moved him around a little bit, had made two errors, but they didn't cost them much in the game. 
And going back to that made for movie aspect, of course, it it's going to be the Yankees first trip back to Cleveland that Joey Sewell is uh, with the club. The guy trying to replace fan favorite Ray Chapman against the team that, you know, the incident happened. But the plain dealer mentioned that fans displayed goodwill towards the Yankees. Um, there were 14,000 fans at that September 9th game and said they were good sportsmanship and uh they held the New York club uh, as a unit guiltless of the unfortunate accident to Ray Chapman at the Polo Grounds last month. With Carl May's absent, they accepted the Yankees, as they always have, as friendly enemies. I mentioned, too, there was no jeering or hooting, no hissing. Uh, but to the contrary, Roger Peckinpah, a Cleveland boy, received a warm round of applause as he went to bat in the first inning. Babe Ruth received his customary ovation first when he went to bat and later when he came through with a home run. All in all, Cleveland could be proud of the actions of its baseball enthusiasts yesterday on the occasions that the first game of the Yankees in Cleveland since the accident to Chapman. So again, the fans, maybe the fact that the Yankees decided not to bring Mays really was a, a sign to Cleveland fans that, that New York understood the situation. Duster's first start actually was quite a bit of a disaster. He didn't make it past the second inning. A speaker actually pulled him after, or in the second inning, he ended up giving it two hits, had four earned runs, a couple walks, uh, and a home run. But he settled down his next few starts. His, his next start actually against St. Louis, he went nine innings and got the win. Had a relief appearance against the Yankees in a loss, but that ended up winning uh, his next five games pretty convincingly too. He got one uh, nine innings for for all the games and really gave the tribe uh, the boost that they needed. Scott mentioned a game where he got himself in a, in a pickle, especially late in the season. It was September 24th against the White Sox before the uh, the news came down about the White Sox and Duster was facing the full force of the White Sox team. Now, after everything happened, the plane dealer wrote this glowing review about how this is going to be remembered forever this uh this inning he had and as it goes he starts the top of the fifth by striking out first batter but then he ends up walking the next three he's got to face buck weaver and eddie collins and and both of which strike out the paper gets into a little more detail about the the pitches of the at-bat and there's a few foul balls that i think put a, a knot in everyone's throat but um, the tribe was clinging to a two nothing lead, and they were only going to score two runs in this entire game. So, they ended up winning two nothing in this late season game. All thanks um, to uh, a Duster Males. Now, granted, he was the one that got himself in this mess, but he was also the one to get himself out of the mess. So, that's where Duster really uh, made a name for himself and settled in like a veteran and really got the job done. It mentioned that Speaker was wanting to get pitchers up uh, in a hurry when this situation started unfolding, but Duster settled down and did what he needed to do and got out of the inning. Then came October 2nd, the magical day that the tribe finally clinched that first pennant. Uh, they rode Jim Bagby to his 31st win in a 10-1 to complete game against the Detroit Tigers. The way the plane dealer covered it, too, it really made it sound like the fans were in shock that it actually finally happened. So many close calls in the past, 
it actually happened. And they said, no club was ever more deserving of the championship for there was never a club that fought more cleanly, more squarely, and with more energy. It met accidents that would have disheartened an ordinary team. But Cleveland, fortunately, had a team above the ordinary, one that had a human dynamo and Tris Speaker directing it. And that's where we leave it. Next week on Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, we're going to focus on that 1920 World Series and all those historical moments that came with it. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox, and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So, why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.